0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. As you know, on this podcast, we air a lot of healthcare topics, as well as clinical advances in oncology. And one of the topics, and and as much as I want to air less of the episodes on COVID-19, there are always there are certain elements of this pandemic that I believe continue to be important to address and to discuss. And my goal is to have this platform for you as a resource that can help you navigate this pandemic now and in the future. Hopefully there's no future pandemic, but I'm really uh, honored and pleased to uh, host Dr. Paul Offit on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Um, I would call Paul the vaccine god. Uh, I mean, again, you must know who Dr. Offit is. He is an American pediatrician. He's also specialized in infectious disease, in vaccines, in immunology. More importantly, he's actually the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. Um, uh, uh, and and again, he will tell us how this actually came about. Dr. Offit currently is the Morris Hillman Professor of Vaccinology and Professor of Pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Previous to that, uh, he also was a, a former chief of the Division of Infectious Disease from 1992 to 2004, the Director of Vaccine Education, Uh, Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Uh, More, uh, again, in addition to all of this, he has been a member of the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and, and has done a lot of work over the past year to two years in helping us all separate the signal from the noise when it comes to vaccines of the COVID-19, of the SARS-CoV-2. It is important to understand that there are a lot of things that actually take place. And some of these things that take place are supported by evidence, others are not. So I've asked Dr. Offit to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered to help answer some questions that I am sure are burning in your minds. These questions pertaining to boosters, of vaccines for adults, for children, for adults immunocompromised, or for adults immunocompetent, or for children and young, y- young adults? Do we need boosters or not? Do we need vaccine mandates for children or not? What about the children under the age of five years? How about the myocarditis? And how about the utilization of bears in trying to understand the adverse events of vaccines? How about non-pharmacologic interventions? Do we need studies or not? One of the most important things that we really, uh, I'm going to ask Paul is how much of our policy and what we actually do on the grounds need to be supported by evidence and by randomized controlled trials versus pontification and being pragmatic and making decisions as we go through. These are very important questions that, Paul is going to help um, answer. I'm also going to ask him what grade he gives the CDC and what grade he gives the WHO on their performance over the past one to one and a half years. You must listen to this episode. If you're tuning in, actually, it means you are listening to it. So uh, before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Paul uh, Offit on the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast, I need to plug in the show by asking you to um, uh, subscribe to it, uh, refer a friend or a colleague, to the show, um, write a brief review, visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com and email me or message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And let me know what you think of all of these, uh, these episodes. I really certainly hope that you will enjoy this episode. I take this episode on 2 It is going to be aired. Uh, uh, on March 1st, uh, as you are tuning on to this day. Without further ado, Dr. Paul Offit on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, It's really an honor and pleasure of mine to have Dr. Paul Offit on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, I am a big fan from afar, although I have not met Paul in person. I'm hoping at some point I will, but uh, I think uh, uh, we've all followed uh, his work. Uh, Paul, welcome to the show. I've been really very much looking forward to having you on and, and really helping me and the listeners, separating the signal from the noise. Um, I know we're two years going to year number three of the pandemic, and you would think that the noise will subside a little bit. There are weeks where I think the noise actually um, increases significantly. We are taping this episode on 2-2-22. So I'm hoping that the Zoom actually works and everything will be fine. We'll be airing this next week. Just as a uh, to, to set the stage, Paul, there are maybe a few people out there who don't know you. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and 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 how did you end up becoming a pediatrician and specifically interested in infectious disease? I I think that that, that the real answer to that question is that uh,
1: when I was five, I was uh, I was I was born with club feet and my foot was uh, operated on because they the. Uh, the casting, I guess, as far as my father was concerned, didn't work well enough. So there was an operation performed on my right foot, which probably should have never been performed. That kind of operation wasn't perfected for another 40 years. So um, that was probably an operation that should have never been done, but it, it was done because, well, it was done. So, uh, and it went badly. So I ended up ending in uh, Kernan. Uh, Children's Hospital, which at the time was called Cranan's Hospital for Crippled Children, because that was at a time when words like crippled and feeble-minded offered were in the names of children's hospitals. And uh, I was there for, for about six weeks. And that was a polio ward. I mean, it was a chronic care facility for children. And I remember that like it was yesterday. I mean, it's kind of seared into my brain. There was one visiting hour a week on Sundays from two to three. My father, who traveled a lot for his job, um, didn't visit me. My mother was... Um, was uh in bed with a uh complication from her pregnancy with my brother so she couldn't visit me so i really was never visited and i just remember looking out the window which which, which looked onto the front of that hospital just waiting for somebody to come save me but i also remember those children uh, you know they, they, how vulnerable and and uh alone they were and and that disease polio certainly struck me this was you know 1956 and um i think that's it i, I think uh, maybe uh um the the passions of our adulthood are invariably a result of the scars of our childhood and that may be it for me just kind of a chronic treatment of myself i think it's what drove me to uh medicine i think it's what drove me to pediatrics i think it what drove me to write a book about polio um the first book i wrote was called the cutter incident about what was the worst biological disaster in our country's history for a polio vaccine made wrong. But uh, just digging through all that archival material in some way was cathartic for me. So I think that's why pediatrics, I think that's why pediatric infectious diseases. And currently, Paul, you're
0: in Pennsylvania. What's the scope of what your current role uh, on faculty there and, and outside of your current role?
1: Right, so I'm an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital, of Philadelphia. So I round on inpatients, you know, about eight weeks a year. Um, I'm the director along with Charlotte Moser of the, um, the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital, which we founded about 20 years ago to try and educate the press and the public about vaccines. So we create all this these educational materials and our, our website. we've made little videos and movies. Uh, we made one video about how mRNA vaccines work that was uh, retweeted by Patton Oswald and uh, and um, Martina Navratilova and Mary Trump. So there it is. That's uh, my career, and um, so so that that's mostly what takes up my time. And you know I still write books and um, and give a lot of lectures, and and so that takes up my time. And obviously the last two years has just been. Overwhelming in terms of the demands of my time for this regarding this pandemic. I'm on the NIH active group, which put together by Francis Collins to try and advise pharmaceutical companies on how best to make vaccines. I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. I'm now on this consortium that um, is advising the White House about um, issues related to vaccines and therapeutics, and we'll actually be talking to the White House during a briefing uh, tomorrow so it's just been really really busy it's exciting i mean it's it's certainly educational but um it's like it's like enjoying eating chocolate and being asked to swim in a vat of it every day that's kind of how it feels so so is
0: it fair to say you know a couple of things about vaccines like just a few things not i mean not a lot just a couple of things not as much as the guy who i trained with i think stanley plotkin uh, was my
1: mentor for you know decades he was the chairman of the the division of infectious disease when i came to children's hospital philadelphia he is the inventor of the rubella vaccine he's the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine he did seminal work on the rabies vaccine on anthrax vaccine i mean he's he knows much more about vaccines than I do. He's a, he, he, in fact, he is the senior editor of the book, Flatkin's Vaccines, this 1600 page, 20,000 reference book. So, all of which he knows. So, he, he's amazing.
0: But, but you also, I mean, you co invented some of these vaccines. And, 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 you know, as you were part of co inventing these vaccines, it's fair to say it takes a long time, right? I mean, it, what, is, is it measured in years usually? So I'm the, I'm the co inventor of one
1: vaccine with Sam Placken and Fred Clark. Uh, we created the strains that became the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. Uh, 26 years is what that took from start it took
0: to... 26 finish. years. So, uh, so uh, I think we can all agree that uh, the vaccines for COVID were obviously in, in record time. So 11 months. I, I don't uh-huh. want to sound jealous, but 11
1: months from isolating that virus and sequencing it to the first two large clinical trials, 11 months, that's the fastest vaccine ever made. It's a,
0: it's remarkable, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I shouldn't know this, but I actually don't. Uh, are you writing a book on COVID? I am. I'm
1: going to be the person who writes a book about COVID. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be one of one million people who write it. Yeah, about
0: but COVID. I'm going to read your book. You know, I have not bought any of the other books. I'm not going to lie. I, sh- I think, and you know why, Paul, to be honest, is I, I, Genuinely believe that um there are lots of books out there that are politicized. I think we live in a very heavily charged political environment. And and the public, the general public, want honest truth, non-biased, and science should not be politicized. And that's why I think a lot of books out there have a political gain. And I think yours will not. So the s- subtitle of this
1: book, still working on the title. The subtitle of this book is How a War Against a Virus Became a War Against
0: Ourselves. Yeah. I love it. Okay. I'm going to be a subscriber. So I, I want to talk about COVID, obviously. I, I think I think there's, there's a lot of things that we can talk about, and I realize we can't cover everything. But the first thing I want to start with is, in general, as we look at efficacy and toxicity of vaccine and so on, when we are faced with a pandemic, how much of our policy should be driven by actual data and randomized control trials and so on versus sometimes you just can't, you just have to be pragmatic and, and just move on and, and, and pontificate using your best clinical judgment. And I think there's a lot of this chatter out there into well, there is no evidence uh, wearing masks is gonna help. There is no evidence X, Y, and Z. How much studies do we need in a randomized controlled fashion as we dictate, as we decide on policy in a pandemic,
1: right? And I think that's the issue. The issue is, what? How about during a pandemic? I mean, because because so. Here's the way I would see it. I mean, when we did our rotavirus vaccine um, trials. Um, you could argue in this country, in the United States, rotavirus would cause about 75,000 children every year to be hospitalized with fever and vomiting and diarrhea and the dehydration that was a consequence of that. It would kill maybe 60 children a year in this country. In the world, it would kill 2,000 children a day. I mean, it was arguably rotavirus were the single biggest killer of infants and young children in the world, including malaria, tuberculosis, HIV. It was the single biggest killer. So was that, should that have moved things quicker? Um, you could could argue reasonably, yes. But the, the trial that we did, the the was a randomized, prospective, placebo-controlled, 70,000-child, 11 country, four-year, probably $350 million trial um, to prove that that vaccine was safe and effective. Now, how about during a pandemic? Now, for example, there was a an, an outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. There were uh, strategies to make a vaccine, actually one of which is very similar to Johnson & Johnson's and um, an AstraZeneca strategy of using this vectored adenovirus approach so do you do randomized control trials in West Africa when there's an Ebola outbreak that's killing thousands of people and the answer was no, so what was done was. Basically, they just rolled out the vaccine and you could see you know, because they couldn't give it to everybody at the same time, you could see. Many people got the vaccine. Many people didn't get the vaccine. So you could see then essentially retrospectively what the efficacy of the vaccine and what the safety of the vaccine was. So that was one way to do it. The way it was done here during the pandemic, whether it was the Pfizer or Moderna's vaccine and the data were presented to our FDA advisory committee on December 10th and December 17th of, of uh, 2020, was to do those trials quickly. I mean, so so those were three-month trials. That, that's the, the size of the trials was typical of any vaccine trial, adult or pediatric. 40,000 for Pfizer, 30,000 for Moderna. Um, The length of safety follow-up was the same for any pediatric or adult vaccine, two months after the last dose, because any serious adverse event that occurs typically occurs within two months. But what was different was the efficacy follow-up. Those were three-month trials, So, so, so that was done quickly. Now, as you move to younger and younger children, um, who were less likely to get infected and less likely to get severely infected, I mean, most of the deaths, eighty-five percent of the deaths from people over sixty-five years of age, and ninety-three percent in people over fifty-five, then you still did trials, you still did clinical trials, but um with much smaller numbers. Therefore, they too were done much more quickly. So, I think it's 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 a hard question to answer, Um but I, I I'll tell you, it's um here here's a perfect example when we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, approved the vaccine, recommended that the 5 to 11-year-old vaccine be approved by the FDA, and it was eventually approved. I got a lot of angry letters. I mean, that understates it. It was like one a minute. I think I got, in the few days before we met, 3,000 emails from people saying, don't vote it, you know, and the usual sort of, you know, references to Nazis and Nuremberg codes and experimenting on people unfairly. And, and, and But the theme of the more rational ones was, you know, this is a 2,400 child trial that they're presenting, right? Roughly, it was two to one vaccine to placebo, so 1,600 children get vaccine, 800 get placebos, so 750 got placebo. Um, that's it? That's all you want to do? 2,400 children? You just did a 40,000 person trial on adults. You're gonna now make a decision for the five to 11 year old, that's 28 million children who could get this vaccine based on 2,400 children, only 1,600 of whom got a vaccine. That's what you're gonna make your decision on. When do you know enough? And that's a fair question. When do you know enough? Because you never know everything. The question is, when do you know enough to to pull the trigger? my response was okay. Um, in, in this trial, the 5 to 11 year old trial, there were 16 children who suffered COVID in, in the placebo group. We could do it instead of doing a 2400 child trial, we can do a 24,000 child trial, in which case then it wouldn't be 16 children who suffered COVID, it would be 160 children who suffered COVID. How much of a price human price, do you want to pay for knowledge? And, and the example I'll use here, because it, it's the reason I wrote this most recent book I wrote called You Bet Your Life. It was the emotional drive for that book, was basically that, that all medical innovations are associated with a human cost, was when Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine, and again this is the passion for me of polio um what did he do he took the virus grew it up in in the laboratory in monkey kidney cells he purified it he inactivated it with a chemical formaldehyde then he gave it to 700 children in and around pittsburgh found that it was safe found that it induced uh, a protective what he felt would be likely a protective immune response and he said that's it got it eureka said it to his wife donna got it um but there was an insistence by the march of dimes that there be a clinical trial, a, a randomized controlled clinical trial. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to give placebo salt water to first and second graders in the 1950s when polio was paralyzing 20 000 to 30,000 children a year and killing 1,500. He just couldn't conscience that. But that's what was done. So 420,000 children got his vaccine. 200,000 children got placebo. And when it was over, that one year trial was over, the largest trial of a medical product in history. Thomas Francis, who headed that trial, stood up at the podium at Rackham Hall in the University of Michigan and said those three famous words, safe, potent, effective. Well, how did he know it was effective? He knew it was effective because 16 children died of polio in that study, all in the placebo group. He knew it was effective because 36 children were paralyzed in that study, 34 in the placebo group, permanently paralyzed. Those were first and second graders in the 1950s. I was a first and second grader in the 1950s. Those children could have lived long, productive, fruitful lives. But for the flip of a coin. So this is what I think is, is always what we struggle with. What I struggle with on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee: When do you know enough? How much of a price do you want to pay before you pull the trigger?
0: You know, these are uh, absolutely, uh, you know, critical points. And I think when when we look at the um, the kids, I, I do feel that um, you know, when do we know enough? I mean, so. Um, you 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 feel for 5 to 11 was enough but then when they just recently reviewed the younger than five years old the application was pulled or something that this is not no we
1: never we never reviewed it so so we were supposed to meet on February 15th right to review a three-dose trial for the less than five-year-old by Pfizer but they only had data on the first two doses I just think that was an ill-conceived idea what what you would have had if we were to approve it we would have had to have assumed that the third dose was, was more effective although we didn't know that we would have had to have assumed that the third dose was was safe which we didn't know I just don't think there's any chance we would have approved that so I think it was didn't make sense to have that meeting I'm not sure
0: Pfizer wanted that at that meeting.
1: I'm not sure the FDA wanted that meeting. I'm not sure why that meeting. So what, what,
0: what, what, what happened there? was I mean, did something happen that uh, they initially wanted to have it then they because a lot of chatter after this was not did not happen, that maybe there are some issues pertaining to efficacy and death in the vaccine arm, and that was the rumor.
1: no, I, I, I think it should have never been scheduled. I think I think my understanding is that they will have their date on a three dose vaccine by the end of March, beginning of April. Then we presumably will have a scheduled meeting sometime in April. We just should have waited. Uh, I, I don't think that the thinking behind that initially was all right. Well, let's let's it's a three dose vaccine, but let's approve two doses. We'll start getting two doses out there and then children can be protected. But that makes a lot of assumptions about what that third dose was going to offer and so I think it was always an ill-conceived idea which is why it should, the meeting should have never been scheduled I don't think this had anything to do with whether there was a safety problem ie a clinical hold on the vaccine I don't think that was true um I, so we'll, we so I don't know anything else about this this three dose vaccine but hopefully will in April
0: well, when it comes to safety you mentioned something really important you said the most serious adverse events will happen in the first couple of months uh from, from the vaccine and there are a lot I mean so for, 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 for longer term, uh, folks use the VARs, as, as you and I know, and it's not really great, but it's probably what we have. What's your opinion about VARs and for folks that just get into this and try to analyze these self-reported adverse events? I mean, is it, do we just completely say whatever comes out of VARs is, is, is not helpful or is there some, some, some merit to it?
1: Right, so, so VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, is misnamed. It should be called, more reasonably, the Suspected Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. I think people, when they look at that title, think these are vaccine adverse events, and they're 99.999% of them aren't. I think the best you can say about the VAERS system is that it's a um, it's a hypothesis-generating system. So, for example, there was a rotavirus vaccine that was introduced in the United States in in the the late 1990s by Wyeth. It was called RotaShield. VAERS was actually the first to report that children within uh, a week or two of getting this vaccine developed an intestinal blockage called intussusception. Um, so, so that's all you knew, you know, got a vaccine, had an interception. Now, this interception does occur in the United States every year, even before there was a rotavirus vaccine. So the question is, was the vaccine causing it? Was this coincidental association or a causal association? You can never figure that out from VAERS because VAERS only gives you one piece of information. Got a vaccine, had a problem. You need three other pieces of information. Got a vaccine, didn't have a problem, didn't get the vaccine, had a problem, or didn't have a problem. You need those four pieces of information. So so that generated the hypothesis could this vaccine have been doing this so then that was we looked at the vaccine safety data link which then looks at children who did or didn't get the vaccine to answer the question were those children who got the vaccine at greater risk and the answer was yes so Vares picked that up VARES also picked up myocarditis early as a consequence of the mRNA vaccine and this thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome associated its the, the blood clotting problem associated with the J&J and AstraZeneca vaccines. So I think VAERS has a role, but it is so misused that I, I really do think it does infinitely more harm than good. I mean, if you turn on Tucker Carlson at Fox News, what you find is him saying three last May, 3,300 people have died of of this vaccine because deaths are reported uh, you know Hank Aaron when he got this va- vaccine to to his 86 year old man he he two weeks after getting the vaccine had a stroke and died and that was reported by a number of outlets as that was caused by the vaccine had he been reported to VAERS that would have been in VAERS as a death following the vaccine but you know He was an 86 year old African-American man who had a stroke. I mean, that happens when you're an older person and happened to him, you know, the the vaccines only prevent vaccine preventable diseases. They don't prevent everything else that happens in life. And that's the problem with VAERS, it's horribly misused. And and so I think, I really do think on balance it's done more harm than good, to be honest.
0: So let's talk about a little bit about, uh, because I wanna get to boosters, but before I do that, now we talked about the efficacy of the vaccines in the five to 11. We're waiting on the data or the meeting for the younger children, and we talked about the efficacy in adults. Before we talk about boosters and the the data uh, on that, vaccine mandates um, became, again, a heavily politicized saga, and especially for children also. Uh, Any thoughts on vaccine mandates and on, I don't know, if you don't get vaccinated, you lose your job. If you're not vaccinated, you can't get into a restaurant. What, what, what is someone like yourself, like you, think about vaccine mandates? Here's how I think about them.
1: I think that, that um, vaccines are our ticket out of this pandemic. Um, we're not going to boost our way out. We're not going to test our way out. Um, the only way to, to get out of this pandemic is to vaccinate. And, and the vaccine works and is safe. So what do you do? I mean, the the Trump administration performed a medical miracle, as far as I'm concerned. Operation Warp Speed was an, an amazing success. In 11 months, you made a highly successful, highly safe, highly effective vaccine. The Biden administration then did the next hard part, figured out how to mass produce it, mass distribute it, mass administer it in a country that doesn't have really a public health system to mass administer vaccines to adults, all for free. And then we were giving... By the beginning of the Biden administration, a million doses a day. Then it was two million doses a day. Then it was three million doses a day. Then it was four, four and a half million doses a day. And then we hit a wall. So we vaccinated now little, little around two thirds of the, this population and hit a wall. We haven't budged really since then. So, so that's the question. Um, of those people who haven't been vaccinated, it is political, it is political or cultural. I mean, it's this kind of, um, let, let libertarian government off my back don't tell me what to do don't tell me how to raise my family don't tell me whether or not i have to vaccinate it and i think for the tetanus vaccine that's fine right you, you know you cut your your foot on a rusty nail you go to the doctor the doctor washes out your foot offers you a tetanus vaccine you say no and then you get tetanus well no one's going to catch tetanus from you not a contagious disease this is a contagious disease you're not just making a decision for yourself people catch this virus from people often who aren't vaccinated because they shed more virus. So is that your right? Is it your right as an American citizen to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? I think it's not. And I have a lot of sympathy for the Biden administration when they really try to essentially make people get a vaccine because we. Do, it's not the only time we have um, mandates in public health i you know you you if you have a small child you are you are asked to put them in a, in a in a car seat um and if not in new jersey it's click it or ticket if you don't have your child in the car seat you can get a ticket and and that's fine I, I think that's and that affects other people less here i understand it i do think we've gone as far as we can go i'll give you an example actually uh we had when i was on service uh a couple months ago um, We admitted a lot of kids with COVID. This was a couple of months ago. Now it's much, much, much less than that. I mean, clearly it's declining in Philadelphia, but there was a family who came in, right? So th- this, this child was an, an adolescent who was unvaccinated, who was pretty seriously ill. I mean, he eventually went, went to the ICU. The mother was unvaccinated, the siblings were unvaccinated, and this child was unvaccinated. The father was vaccinated. Why? Because he had to be for work. There's something to be said for that. I think um, it's it's a hard question to answer. We, I wish we didn't have to. In a better world, you wouldn't need mandates.
0: What do you think about vaccine mandates for children, though? I mean, because, you know, one argument is that children are less affected, uh, less ill. They don't get as seriously ill. And then if the adults are vaccinated around them, do we need to mandate the children? And the only reason I mentioned that is because some folks say, to your earlier point, Paul, when we first started, that the data on the vaccines in children, you know, just a couple of thousand children. So do we need to mandate it for children like adults? Well, so how many children have died of this virus? I mean, how many people
1: less than 18 years of age have died from this virus? About a thousand. It's a lot. I mean, we, we mandate a measles vaccine. We mandate a mumps vaccine, rubella, German measles vaccine, polio vaccines. We mandate those vaccines for school entry because those viruses are often, especially measles, for example, are often passed from one person to another in school. And we were able to essentially eliminate from this measles from this country the most contagious of the vaccine preventable diseases by the year 2000 because of school mandates. So, does this vaccine deserve a school mandate? In other words, is it is there enough disease in, in young children, infants and young children, to explain to 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 uh, reasonably offer mandates or, or uh, require a mandate for this? I, I think I think the answer is yes. You, you you make a good point. Let's suppose everybody in all the teachers are vaccinated. Everybody in your in your um, in your family is vaccinated. But you know. When the data were presented to us for the 5 to 11-year-old, what surprised me the most is that this doing prevalence studies on that age group, 40% of children had already been infected, which tells you your, your point. Most of those infections were asymptomatic. But when I was on service a couple months ago, we admitted 18 children during the, the week that I was on service. Uh, all of them were over five. Um, none of them were vaccinated, and a handful of them, five, went to the intensive care unit. If you can prevent that safely, prevent it. And it is upsetting to me that parents chose not to vaccinate. I mean, the vaccine for the five to 11-year-old was approved in early November, so there'd been a couple months, really, for for those children to be vaccinated, and the parents chose not to vaccinate them, and therefore those children suffered and and were hospitalized, and some went to the ICU and had to be ventilated. If that can be safely prevented, it should be. It's upsetting to me that a parent would choose to, to, to not do that I, if i had children in that age group i certainly would vaccinate them
0: i, I think the, the the question that comes up for example safely vaccinate so you know can we get by with one dose versus two doses because of the risk of myocarditis The just schemes coming up in terms of young uh, young boys specifically or young men specifically you know at least that's what really uh has been published so so in other words in medicine, as an oncologist, I've always believed one hat never fits all. So is there a reason why we can't think we can maximize the administration for kids while minimizing possible side effects? Why give two? Why not give one? All of these things. And anytime you try to propose that, the assumption becomes that you're really an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah, okay, here's what I would say. Um the
1: the I think t- the, the the incidence of myocarditis in the sixteen to twenty-nine year old is roughly one per twenty thousand. Myocarditis is is a scary word, it means inflammation of the heart muscle. Um, but the, the, the good news is it does appear to be a transient self resolving phenomenon. It's not like the myocarditis associated with, say, Coxsackie virus, you know, where children often go to the ICU and four to nine percent of those children will be, will have to have a heart transplant. I mean, that's not this. I wish we had a different word for this because the word myocarditis never sounds good. I mean, mild myocarditis sounds like (laughs) a contradiction in terms. So, so, so that is the risk. One in 20,000 for the 16 to 29 year old. Now, COVID also causes myocarditis. Um, if you look at, for example, a study that was done um, in the Big Ten conference, where they, they what they did was they did uh, cardiac MRIs on everybody who had COVID, everybody, symptomatic or not, with heart symptoms, everybody gets a, an MRI. And what they found was that the incidence of myocarditis in that group was one in 45. 2.5%, one in 45, so one in 20,000 versus one in 45. And the, the myocarditis associated with COVID is more serious, especially associated with MIS-C, you know, this multisystem inflammatory disease, this post-infectious inflammatory disease of the five to 13 year old, primarily the nine year old. I mean, that's a, a much more serious form of myocarditis. So again, there's no risk-free choices, just choices. Yeah, but, I mean, can,
0: you think we can avoid those two, for example? uh here's
1: here's the problem with that the
0: problem with that is the goal of the vaccine is to induce
1: memory cells which will then give you protection against serious illness the best way to induce high frequencies of memory b cells and memory t helper and cytotoxic t cells is with that second dose to not get the second dose is to dramatically decrease i think your chance of having long-lived protection against serious illness
0: Let's talk about boosters. Um, um, I think you know um, you know there there are sometimes uh, jokes circulating on on WhatsApp and on the internet. Booster number four, five, six, seven, and you know the the, the ones that. Uh... But in all seriousness, when we I talk would hate about, I get the free pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get the free pizza, but let's talk about boosters. Uh, I mean, this is really um, an open-ended questions because um, there are boosters for adults and then boosters for children. And um, you know, I think we can do a randomized controlled trials to look at the efficacy of boosters. And uh, and I also you have patient, you have people who have had COVID, so you've gotten the, you know, the two shots. You've got COVID. Do you need a booster? I mean, it's a whole lot of things to actually uncover. And I kind of feel, at least when I listen to many public health officials, not you, that you know everybody should get a booster if you're an adult third dose if you're immunocompromised four doses and that's it and I get confused it's confusing here's what I here's what I would say um the goal of the vaccine is to
1: protect against serious illness the way in which you do that is you generate high frequencies of memory T cells the the this is where the CDC could help us out but hasn't because they have these data I don't think you need to do a randomized control trial there are so many people who have gotten two doses so many people who've gotten three doses with all different kinds of comorbidities or not that you can answer this question they have the data to answer this question but here's what I would say the data show so far with the data and I I, I don't use the word booster because the word booster implies boosting something and what you're boosting is neutralizing antibodies for about three months and and that doesn't matter because what that does is that protects you against mild disease for a few months. The most important thing is who, who, how many doses do you need to induce high frequencies of memory B and T cells to protect you against serious disease? I think that that where a three dose vaccine is clearly a value or necessary even is for people who are over 65 years of age. Although if you look at the data, it's really people over 70 years of age, but for the purpose of this discussion, we'll say people over 65. I think that three doses are clearly a value at least if you're immune compromised, although the term immune compromise, obviously, is a very broad term, um, there are different levels of being immune compromised, certainly at least three doses and arguably to some for some people, four doses, I think three doses, it's a three dose vaccine for people who, who have multiple comorbidities, I, I, who put them would they put them at highest risk of being hospitalized, I think it is a three dose vaccine i think for healthy young people people less than 50 years of age people 18 or 12 to 49 years of age who who don't have those those comorbidities i don't see any evidence why you need a third dose i don't and and i i have asked challenged arguably those those people at the cdc to please provide evidence Behind that recommendation, because that's the recommendation. I mean, the FDA basically that without going to our committee, I'd like to say, without going to the FDA vaccine advisory committee, basically said, yes, this can be you can have a booster dose for everybody over 18, and then the CDC said okay. And then the FDA said you can have a booster dose for everybody over 12, and then the ACIP also said okay, for reasons that escape me. Because what happened was by making that recommendation for for, for people say healthy young people without evidence that that, that, that that clearly increases your protection against serious illness then the mandates came because now you had a recommendation if they'd made it a should be considered recommendation a permissive recommendation, the mandates wouldn't have come and with the mandates came the anger and and I certainly get emails from people understandably who say look, I have a healthy boy who's going to college and he can't get in until he gets his third, can't get get back on campus until he gets a third dose. I think there's a risk of myocarditis. I don't think there's much benefit here. I don't think he should get that vaccine. I agree. I mean, my child is is my children. I have a boy and a girl in their 20s. My son asked me whether, I thought he should get a booster dose and I said, no. And somebody, realizes that he doesn't listen to me his girlfriend told him to
0: get a third dose so he got it but just so we're clear but uh, be, be, because you did, you did this you were called by some as anti-vaxxer Called? did you know I, that yeah i know i think when when the
1: right starts to embrace when the anti-vaxxers start to embrace you you probably can assume you're wrong but yeah. i don't see myself that way
0: no, but 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 I, but I do think uh, I mean my uh, I have uh, uh, two boys as well and uh, they're vaccinated, but I did not do the booster. I t- to your point, I really did not see that evidence. But uh, for those who are listening, what evidence do you want to see for boosters in the younger patient uh, people, in the younger people?
1: I want to see who's getting hospitalized and why. If, if we know the people, there's a obviously a large a disproportionate number of people who are hospitalized that are unvaccinated. I mean, they are basically the people who are hospitalized. I can tell you that at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, when we see children admitted to the hospital, they're never vaccinated. So the unvaccinated get hospitalized. Of those who are hospitalized who are vaccinated, say have gotten two doses of vaccine, but despite that who are, are hospitalized, who are they? How old are they? Do they have comorbidities? If so, what are those comorbidities? So we can target that third dose to them. That, that's all I'm asking for. Those data exist. Uh, and I just wish the CDC would be willing to substratify the information they have when they publish these articles in MMWR
0: to let us know that. Why why do you think they're not doing that? Like, I mean, what's, I mean, you know, you're, you're well connected with the CDC. And I mean, why is there, that's where, that's where I think the public sometimes started losing trust, because to your point, they have the data, they could share it with us, No i would think so i I don't know why maybe they just feel it is not yet
1: um it's not uh, robust enough or internally consistent or validated and so they feel that the data are not ready for prime time which is basically what they've said and i I don't know because i don't know the data. and certainly it's true that among researchers, there's often disagreements about whether something is ready for prime time. And certainly that's what aired in that article in the New York Times the other day, when basically I think some of those researchers stepped forward and said, we do have these data. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think the CDC is under no obligation to publish data they think is not ready yet. But if they have these data and, and they're ready, would really we do need to see them because, because the recommendation preceded the science. The recommendation was give a booster dose to everybody over 12 without any real evidence that you made better that you had better protection against serious illness now what that did do is it it did increase um neutralizing antibodies for a few months and would then lessen your chance of getting a mild infection with omicron but that's really not a public health strategy if if we're gonna this is a mucosal virus um if we're gonna gonna try and keep boosting you know to protect prevent prevent mild illness uh then you're talking about several boosters a year which is not a viable public health strategy.
0: Let's talk about a few other things, and I know I promise you I'll get you I'll get you off uh, on time because I know you have another obligation, but uh, there are a couple of topics that I really think are very important. One of them um, is asymptomatic testing. I'll probably in my opening monologue, I'll offer my opinion, hey, what the heck? I'll just tell my opinion. I think it's useless. I think just testing just people for the sake of testing is probably the most useless thing I've ever heard of. And uh, my God, I mean, maybe it's slowing down a little bit right now. The way I know this, because I go to Walgreens and all of the testing are still there on the shelves. Nobody's buying them anymore. Why did the government, you don't speak for the government, Why we invested so much money to send these four tests for everyone and everybody now tests at their own. What's, what is your opinion about asymptomatic testing?
1: I think we're driving ourselves crazy is my opinion. I think, I think the biggest communications error that was made with this, this vaccine was on July 4th of 2021 when there was an outbreak of, um, of COVID, uh, in Provincetown, Massachusetts. So there's a gathering of thousands of men. They get together. They're celebrating July 4th. Roughly 80% are vaccinated with two doses of an mRNA vaccine. Um, despite that. 346 men get COVID, four of those 346 are hospitalized for a hospitalization rate of 1.2%. Great, that's a vaccine that's working. The rest of them had asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic disease, which were sadly referred to as breakthrough illnesses. That's a terrible term. If we're trying to hold this vaccine to protection against mild disease, we're going to drive ourselves crazy because no mucosal vaccine does that. Not the flu vaccine, not the rotavirus vaccine. Um, it, it's, it's an impossible standard. It's, that's a win. Those 342 men who went, were vaccinated in the midst of a pan of a, of a, an outbreak who had only mild disease won. When Queen Elizabeth, who's gotten two doses of a vaccine, she refuses to say whether she'd gotten a third dose, but let's assume she got two doses of a vaccine. She She's 95. She has a mild illness. She's doing light work around Buckingham Palace. That's a win. That's a win. So... And we just, we just keep inadvertently damning the vaccine. I think similarly, when President Biden got up on August 18th and said, as of September 20th, we are going to have a booster dose for everybody over 16 years of age without ever running this by the FDA or without ever running it by the CDC. What did he do? He said two doses aren't enough. So, so here you have this amazing vaccine that's remarkable in its capacity to protect against serious illness, that is remarkably safe considering it's been given to like 4.5 billion people in this world have received COVID vaccines. I mean, this is the biggest vaccine program in history, and it is remarkably safe. And nonetheless, we just keep inadvertently damning it. You know, two doses isn't enough. And also this notion, which was also born in that Provincetown outbreak, they said that the CDC said that it didn't matter whether you were vaccinated or not. And you had mild illness. If you were vaccinated, had mild illness. You were unvaccinated, had mild illness. You still were just as contagious. Wrong. That was wrong. You are much less contagious if you've gotten vaccinated than if you weren't vaccinated. So again, they damn the vaccine. There because- are
0: medical there are medical meetings that take place in order for you to get into the hallway. You have to test every single morning to get in the room. Um- imagine if we did this with flu. I imagine if we did Brave. this with flu. Tests by PCR who
1: is asymptomatically infected. I mean, you would realize you're on a mountain of flu. You're staying on a mountain of flu. You're just trying to keep people out of the hospital and keep them from dying. I mean, pandemic 101,
0: save the healthcare system. That's happened. Yeah. So non-pharmacologic intervention, that is my last topic. And uh, uh, non-pharmacologic intervention, social distancing, masks, sloth masks, K95, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, oh, I, I may I may want to talk about masking in restaurants and planes before I let you go because it's crazy, I think. But um, non-pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic interventions. How much studies do we need to for masking or not masking? Masking children in schools, not masking in schools, all of these things. Because there are two points, two count point and counterpoint. What are your thoughts on NPIs? NPIs, as they call, as we call them.
1: Well, I mean, so this is a virus that is transmitted by the respiratory route I mean initially that wasn't clear I mean when you saw nursing homes initially in nursing homes and and uh cruise ships people thought you know maybe there's a fecal oral component to this and we that's when we were talking about you know washing surfaces well like for neurovirus but that wasn't true so it's respiratory route and it's spread by small droplets I mean do masks well-fitting masks prevent the entrance or exit of small droplets yes they do so I think there are a number of studies done that have shown that that it, that, that if you do the study correctly, that it worked, that, that masks do have a value. Now, there was that Arizona study that came out that the CDC trumpeted that, unfortunately, was not a well-done study, and it was unfortunate that they trumpeted it, and it sort of cast down. And also, I think when uh, Dr. Fauci, very early on in the, in the pandemic, said that you didn't need to wear masks, that they didn't work, and then you know, when we were wearing masks, that was very confusing. I think masks have been confusing. I think the answer to the question of masks is it's not going to matter over time. I mean, I, I when I'm in Philadelphia, I can tell you everybody wears a mask. They wear masks outside if you go inside to the grocery store everybody wears a mask right now i am in a, a place in avalon new jersey where no one wears a mask i mean go to the grocery store no one even the checkout people don't wear a mask. nobody wears a mask so i think people are going to do what they're, they're going to do and it almost doesn't matter what the cdc says at this point i mean
0: it's about the mandates like you know if you're on a plane you can uh, lower your mask and eat and drink for an hour and it's okay but the minute you stop eating and drinking you have to put a mask i feel this is theater. <laughs> I think it's sort of just how people feel. I think
1: it makes them feel like they're protected, um, you know, and 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 so you're you're more nervous if you're sitting next to somebody who you don't know. You don't know whether they're vaccinated. You don't know whether they have mild illness, and 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 you just would prefer they wear a mask. I, I do think this is going to happen. It's. February 22nd right now. Today, we are talking on February 22nd. The numbers are clearly starting to come down with hospitalizations and they will then will follow where the numbers will come down with deaths, which is really all you care about. I wish we'd stop talking about cases because a lot of the cases aren't reported, especially when people do home antigen testing. And who cares? Uh, What you really care about is are we winning in terms of hospitalizations and deaths? And the answer is yes. And it's just going to get better as the weather gets warmer. And we're going to hit summer, and the number is going to be way down. And I think we're not going to have this conversation anymore. But I do think if it's like human coronaviruses, and I think it is, this will be a winter virus. And it'll come back again as it did last winter. It'll come roaring back. And the degree to which it roars back will be much more blunted than it was this winter, because we have probably 90% population immunity at this point. Between natural infection and immunization, you probably have 90% Population immunity, so we're getting there. I think,
0: and, and I think, and I think to your point, it probably won't matter. I think what people get rubbed off wrong is, is the mask mandates and and children masking because, you know, I mean, um, I can tell you in the school district of my children, all of the teachers are vaccinated, hundred percent, ninety percent of the kids are vaccinated. The there is no, there are no infections happening in the district, and then they still have to wear masks eight, eight hours a day. I mean, yeah, that's where. Like wear them if you want, and don't wear them if you don't want. But I think whenever you put the word mandate to your earlier point, people start thinking this is infringement of freedom and so on. Uh, be- bef- uh, before I let you go, my last question is uh, if you want to give a, a, a mark to the CDC, from uh, you want to give them a grade to the CDC and the WHO, how do you think they performed over the past year?
1: Um. Well, I mean, you know, I used to be on a voting member of the advisory committee for immunization practice. I know a lot of people at the CDC, so it's sort of hard for me to give them a grade. I, I give them, I guess, a, a B minus. Um, the the I think that they've been good at generating a, a number of, of uh, critical epidemiological studies that have been helpful, but I think that they I think they do I really do think they could do a better job of communicating. Which is 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 hard for me to say that because I think Rochelle Walensky is. Great. Uh, she is such an empathetic person. She really cares. She really wants to do the right thing. She's come out of an academic uh, setting and now she's in a it's some level a political setting. And I think that's not necessarily easy for her, for anybody. And um, I guess what I if if I, if fantasies could come true, I would like to see the CDC do what it did in two thousand nine with the swine flu pandemic. What you have was you had the CDC director then Richard Besser every other day in front of the media, every other day answering questions, uh, which is basically. Questions from the public—it's what the public wants to know—and I wish I wish that happened. Um... I think that would help in terms of the who i do think we're if there's if there's one thing i hope we learn from this pandemic we need an international surveillance system for these kinds of viruses i mean we should not have had to have depended on a whistleblower in wuhan to tell us that dozens of people were dying of unusual pneumonia i mean we were way behind the eight ball as a as a world before we before we knew that 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 shouldn't happen china was not a reasonable neighbor here and also those those markets where they had a lot of species close together that were uh, the mammals that should not legally have been sold um you know like the raccoon dogs and civets and stuff that 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 can't happen i mean there there is a responsibility to this world i think as uh, for each of these countries
0: well are there any questions i should have asked you that you think are important to listeners i think we hit so many things but anything specific that you really think i should have asked that's really important No, I I think
1: that I guess I would conclude with this. I I think we are going to move from a pandemic to an endemic situation. And and you'd think that there's like a statistical description for endemic, but it's not. The the definition of endemic is you basically don't change your life. So you don't wear a mask. You don't social distance. You do all the things business wise and and, uh, school wise that you would have done otherwise, which is what we do with flu. I mean, you know, two years before this pandemic hit, influenza caused about 700,000 hospitalizations and 60 deaths in this country, which we grandfather in. I mean, if we masked and social distance and we're much more aggressive about flu vaccination, we could lessen those numbers. We don't. We live with them. I don't know what that line is for, for COVID, but there will be a line where we say we can live with this degree of hospitalization and death because this virus isn't going away for a while. I mean, realize we still vaccinate children every year in this country for polio even though we haven't had a case of polio in this country since the 1970s almost 50 years why because it still exists in the world Pakistan Afghanistan think about how long this virus is going to be existing in this world and mutating in this world but we're going to need to have a highly immune population for years if not decades so I really when I think about vaccinating children one of the reasons I argue with with or talk to parents about is These children are going to need to be protected for a long time. You're protecting them also when they become adolescents and adults, because um, this is is not a vaccine we're going to get every year, right? You just get the two or three shots and you're done. It depends on how how long protection lasts against serious illness. And that's where the CDC needs to consistently give us data. That Provincetown outbreak, where you had basically uh, 346 people who were infected and 1.2% were hospitalized, that's the number you need. It's not the number of people who are hospitalized that are vaccinated. That's not the number because ultimately, if 100% of the population is vaccinated, 100% of people who are hospitalized will have been vaccinated because the vaccine is not 100% effective. The the number you need is what percentage of people who are vaccinated are hospitalized because that tells you the vaccine is not protecting against serious disease. And who are those people? How old are they? What are their comorbidities? are they immune suppressed that's what you need to know those are the data that constantly need to be generated because there may be a variant that that is created that is resistant to protection against uh moderate to severe disease because because now those those basically uh um those um epitopes on SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that are conserved are not conserved on a new variant, and then then you're talking about another vaccine. Then you're talking about a variant-specific vaccine, and we need to we need to constantly be looking at those data. That's what would reassure me from the CDC. Paul,
0: well, I'm 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 very grateful for your time. I really appreciate the generous time you provide me and the listeners, um, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, hopefully having you uh, uh, next year, and we talk about something completely different. Uh, and I'm looking forward to reading your book. It sounds good. Thanks. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you being part of the show. I'd like from you to tell me how I'm doing. You can send me an email at cnabhan1968 at gmail.com or through my website, www.shadynabhan.com. Subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. Refer a colleague to the show and watch all of the episodes on Healthcare Unfiltered on the YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned more about the nuances of the COVID-19 issue, the pandemic, and the vaccines more than that you knew uh, before. Uh, and before I let you go, I would like to um, leave you with, with a, a saying that um, that uh, Winston Churchill once stated. And I think it's actually important because there are a lot of misinformation that we have seen over the past several years, and Dr. Offit helped us making sure we separate the signal from the noise. Winston Churchill once said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Until next time, take care.